right, everybody, come on in. We will get started. And you should uh, have the notes that you received last week, if you remembered to bring those. If not, we have extra copies that are being distributed. And we will pick up where we left off. And it'll be on page three, but I'm going to call attention again briefly to some things on, on page one. So does everyone have notes? Anybody not have notes? Right, great, great work, guys. Thanks for distributing those. Just a couple of announcements. One is uh, this Saturday is our annual Enchanted Trails event uh, for, for children, and it is always a delight to everybody who attends, 5 to 7 uh, here uh, at, at our building. So bring your children, bring your grandchildren, tell some friends uh, about it. They'll get uh, a bunch of candy, but they will also uh, see people um, dressed up as Disney characters primarily and uh, in amazing ways where so many of them look almost identical to the real Disney characters. So it's always a great time. That's this Saturday, 5 o'clock. On November the 11th, Saturday, November the 11th, 10 a.m. to about noon at our house is our next newcomer's brunch. Any of you that are new, relatively new to our church, you've never been to one of our brunches, we really, my wife and I would really love to have you in that setting. You can only talk so much in a setting like this before or after services, so that's why we offer those. There's no program with that, so nothing formal about it, uh, and the food is always great, I must say. My wife does that. Some other ladies in the church help her out with it, so you'll have some good food, and we'll have a good time getting to know each other better. We do need to know who's coming for food purposes, so uh, you'll see that graphic on our website, and if you'll go there and register, uh, please, please do that. We'd love to have you. The first session of this course, God's Design for Sexuality, like all of our sessions, all of our teaching lessons and all of our sermons, they are on our website. If you were not able to be with us then, last week, you can go and listen to that. And we went through the first couple of pages, first two and a half pages of the notes that you have in, in front of you. But if you look at page one, on page one, I say in the third paragraph there, Although the issues related to sexuality have shifted dramatically in recent years, the concern about them should have gone back much, much further, especially among professing Christian people. And that's because the need for sober and biblical reflection on sexuality did not arise lately, even if the keen interest in it has arisen lately. So one of the things I wanted for us to get straight at the outset of this series is the need for us to talk about a biblical approach to this important topic is not because of recent events, recent shifts, as important as those are, and we will talk about those. But the truth is, even without that, we need to talk about what God says about this, about this subject, and not only should we know what God says about all topics that he addresses. But we also need help with this because last sentence there in that third paragraph, the truth is, heaven, we've got a problem. So we've got a problem. And evangelicals, that, that conservative 
Bible-believing people have had a problem for a very long time. And I mentioned some of these, so I'm not going to go over them again. But there are many more that can be added to a list like this. That conservative people, presumably conservative morally uh, people, have problems with, the, with this topic. And it's seen even in some of our, our political leaders. Some of our conservative political leaders. I mean, I'm a guy who, you know, I became, an, I turned 18 in, in 1980. So Ronald Reagan became the president. The people who were conservative heroes to a guy like me were Reagan. But then the moral majority, some of you might be old enough to remember that, led by Jerry, the late Jerry Falwell Sr. Um, and a woman named Phyllis Schlafly of Eagle Forum. And Phyllis Schlafly was an, an absolutely amazing woman. You ought, to, you ought to read about her sometime if you've never heard of her. But she was an amazing woman. She had a law degree. She was very well-spoken. She was the most pleasant personality you would ever want to meet. But she was sharp as she could be. And she held con very conservative moral values. And she could hold her own with anybody. But she was very disarming because she looked like she just came out of the kitchen with an apron on. <laughs> really, all the time. She dressed very conservatively, but yet she could articulate conservative moral values very clearly. So that's, that's, what, I grew, that's what I grew up with. And now we have Lauren Boebert. Lauren Boebert, representative, second term House of Representatives from probably the one red district in Colorado, which is primarily a blue state. But Lauren Boebert was just, you know, within the last month, she's caught on camera at a public theater groping a guy in her seat and being groped. And it's out there if you, you know, don't believe me, but if you just take my word for it, you can spare yourself, okay? <laughs> and she's dressed in a way that is just shameful. Nancy Mace, also a relatively new representative in our House of Representatives from South Carolina. And she, within the last two months, gave a speech at a prayer breakfast of all places where her own pastor was present. And she got up and she started out by saying, oh, I almost didn't make it on time. Because as I, and I'm paraphrasing, but as I was I was trying to get dressed, you know, my boyfriend was kind of grabbing me by the waist and I'm saying, but no, honey, we can't do that now. I got to go. She's joking about it at this prayer breakfast where her pastor is present. She, see, there's a word for that. There's a biblical word for what she's describing in the King James Version. It's called fornication. But she's joking about it. She doesn't, she doesn't, it doesn't dawn on her for a moment that it's not okay for her to be having sex with her boyfriend outside of marriage. It doesn't dawn on her. So she can come and say that to a bunch. And, and by the way, these Christians gathered at the prayer breakfast chuckled. 
Her pastor didn't have much to say about it. You know, I, let me just say, if that happened to one of y'all, <laughs> we'd be chatting about it. Listen, it just if I, I hope and I, I appreciate, I mean this, I appreciate from the bottom of my heart your indulgence as I try to navigate these choppy cultural waters as best I can. And if I say something you don't like, well, just uh, ignore it. Give me the benefit of the doubt if, as best you can, okay? But, you know, even, even things like the people we conservatives watch on TV and really appreciate, let's just step back and think about this for a bit. And I'm going to mention Fox News here. And that here I'm not talking about the content of what they say. That's a whole other subject. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about I'm talking about the people that they present on there and how they present them. You will all know the name Roger Ailes, the late Roger Ailes, right? The Roger Ailes at the toward the end of his life, he was exposed as using these anchor women that he had hired for years for sexual favors. And in exchange for advancing their careers. Bill O'Reilly had to quit his Fox show because he was caught in a phone sexting and kind of scandal himself with people who worked under, under him. Just take, a, just take a quick gander at Fox News and the anchors that they have on there and you just tell me if in an unbiased way you can say there's a particular profile of the kind of person they want on there. You know, Roger had a, a, a thing apparently for, you know, blonde, young women. Sometimes dressed provocatively on, as anchors. They have a show called The Five. And it's, you know, five people sitting around a, a table that talk about current events. But, you know, I haven't watched it for years, so I can just tell you how it used to be back in the day when... Uh, when Donald Trump Jr.'s current girlfriend, Kimberly Guilfoyle, who did you know is the ex-wife of Gavin Newsom, the governor of California? Is that the wildest combination you've ever seen? Anyway, but she used to be on there, and they would always make sure that they sat Kimberly on the end with a short dress, and they called that particular chair the leg chair. So you can show some leg today. And they made sure with the cameras that they came out so you could see. Now, you go, okay, if that's the worst you got. But I'm simply pointing out to you that we have become very desensitized to the sensuality of our culture. We have. We've gone from Phyllis Schlafly to Kimberly Guilfoyle, Lauren Boebert, Nancy May. And I, and I fear that many of us don't even realize it until a guy like me comes along and says, hey, let's think about this for a minute. And so we've got a problem. It's not they have a problem, we've got a problem that, that we need to address. And I gave some statistics, bottom of page one and on to page two, about the scourge of pornography. But I don't want to just leave it there and leave those of you that are struggling, and I said last week that I have zero doubt 
that in a room this size that there are people who are struggling with that. And so if that's the case, we don't want to leave it. We want help for that. Uh, so if you would like for me to help you with that, let me know. I can give you a highly recommended source for sexual struggles of all sorts. This is a ministry that devotes itself to it. It's called Harvest USA. Harvest USA. Harvest USA has materials. They have books and booklets, but they also have counselors, so you can counsel with them uh, long distance. They're located in Philadelphia, but that is one uh, highly recommended source for you. And then on page two, we began to look at the need for God to be central to the equation as we think about a series with the title God's Design for, for Sexuality. And I tried to point out that you have to start with God. You have to start with God for, for everything. And I listed some of those things on page three, top of page three. That existence requires God, values do, morals do, reason does, science requires God. And we, we left off there. So let me pick up then at Roman numeral two. We've looked at God as part of the God's design for sexuality. Now, you see I've emphasized the word design there. We want to look at God's design. And let me introduce it this way, that you have to have right before you can see wrong. Right must precede wrong. You won't see wrong and you won't know what it is unless you have right first. So you must have right to see wrong. You must have normal to know abnormal. You must have order to be able to identify disorder. So someone might say, perhaps you might say, you know what, you, Pastor Ken, are judgmental. Who, why are you judging people that are involved in pornography? If all they do is look at stuff on their own, who are you to, to judge somebody else? So you might say, I'm wrong to judge people involved in pornography. But the question then is, by what standard of right are you able to say that I'm wrong? In order for any of us to challenge something as wrong, it has to be preceded by a standard of right. In order for us to say that anything is abnormal, it has to have a standard of what's normal or order and disorder. So if, if tolerance is your standard, then who says uh, what it is that you are to tolerate and not tolerate? By what standard? Can a guy like me be tolerated in your standard of toleration? And where'd you get it? You see, a lot of times people will say to you, believe me, guys like me hear it all the time, you're intolerant. You won't tolerate the views, or at least some of the views of other people. And I go, so do you tolerate intolerant people like me? You see, everybody, they still have to come up with some standard that justifies why they object as they do, as all of us must. Psychiatric disorders assume order. When someone says, I'm, I was diagnosed with such and such disorder, what does that assume? That there's a proper way that this is supposed to work. 
And it's not working that way. So I think that's very good and appropriate, but I'm just simply pointing that out, and I think we often take that for granted and we don't, we don't think about it. So it's necessary for us then to look at right, to look at normal, to look at order first. And that's why then, having last week looked at the necessity of the standard that only God can supply, we now can look at Roman numeral two on page three, God's design. What did God set as right and as normal and as order for sexuality? And I say there, the essential elements of God's original design for humanity in creation, our fall into sin, and God's gracious promise, promise of restoration, all of that is set forth in the first three chapters of the Bible. <laughs> I mean, that's a mouthful, but you only get you know, three, first three chapters, and you've got God's design, you've got how we messed it up, and you've got God's promise to restore, all in those first three chapters. So I'd like to take time to remind us of what is there, how it sets order, it sets right, it sets normal, and then we'll see how it became wrong and disordered and abnormal. So humanity at creation. Of the six days of the creation week, the final one stands out. For it was on day six that God made his highest earthly creature. The creation account climaxes with a description of the first man and woman as unique from all else that God made. And we're going to look at that in a second. But just let me say here that in Genesis chapter 1, which most of you have, I think, read, then you see the six days of creation. And it's on that final day, the sixth day, that this crowning achievement of God in his creation is made, humanity. And then you come to chapter 2, and chapter 2 is not a different creation account. Many people have gotten that mixed up. But rather, what chapter 2 of Genesis is, is an expansion of day 6 of creation. Day 6 is about the creation of humanity, and chapter 2 is devoted to detail about that creation. And so we'll, we'll see that. So of the first, on the first five days, I say here, God spoke in the, in the same way as he brought the world into existence. And so this is what you have in chapter 1. Starting in verse 3, God said, let there be. God said, let there be light, let there be a vault, let there be water, let there be land, let there be lights. And God said, and God said, and God said. So you have this kind of rhythm, this kind of cadence going through Genesis chapter 1. God says, and something comes to be. But suddenly that cadence marked by the words, and God said, is broken when you get down to verse 28 of Genesis chapter 1, and it says this, God blessed them and said to them. So in the, in the previous examples of God speaking, God is speaking something into existence. Now God is speaking to something that he has made. And that something is humanity, and humanity is able to understand among all of God's creatures, humanity is made with the ability to understand God talking. Wow. And you didn't have to take a class. Adam didn't have to ask for credentials. So who might you be talking to me here in the garden? 
he was made by his creator to know the voice of his creator. And God speaks to them. Here we not only have God speaking then, I say, but speaking to humanity. And the context tells us why God communicated to humanity in a way that was different than the rest of creation. Because verse 27 says, He created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them, and this is important, male and female, He created them. So at the outset of creation, God wants us to know that His image is, And he desires that his image be seen in two sexes, male and female. He created them. And the uniqueness, and so we'll come back to that in, in weeks to come then, but setting the foundation now. And the uniqueness of his image bearers is underscored with chapter two devoted to that elaboration I was talking about of day six, which describes the creation of Adam, the work that God assigned Adam to do the warning and the opportunity that God placed before him, the woman God gave to aid him in that work, and the joy and the intimacy that Adam and Eve had for and with one another. Though God pronounced all of his work on the other five days good, he applied the description very good only after day six, after his image bearers were created. So it doesn't take much to see the priority of humanity in God's creation. And that in chapter two, chapters one and two of Genesis, he gives his design for them. And we learn something of this image in which humanity is made by the particular words that are used for it in Genesis chapter one, top of page four. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. That image refers to a representation. The God who is spirit causes a represent, creates a representative in a physical form. So just as an ancient king would place an image of himself in an area of his realm to show his sovereignty, God makes man in his image to represent him in this newly created world. Thus, image has kingship implications. Yet in this case, these representations are, instead of inanimate things, they are living, breathing human beings, not lifeless statues. While God is the king, he created man as a king, a vice regent and mediator over the creation. The term likeness indicates man in is in relationship with God. He's a son of God. Because man is a son of God, he's able to represent God. So sonship is closely connected to rulership. The assignment that humanity received in Adam was to serve as God's vice regents on earth. And so Adam was told to Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea, birds in the sky, over every living creature that moves on the ground. And this is what has been rightly called the dominion mandate. To have dominion, a mandate, a command. To have dominion over creation. And it was given by the king of creation to all humanity. That is, this mandate is not required of Adam and Eve alone, but rather they as they are fruitful, as they increase in number, as they fill the earth, it's taken up by their posterity. So the original design was that. <laughs> we were supposed to rule. And we were supposed to rule on God's behalf. Using the unique design that he gave to us, male and female, to run his world for him. And the Hebrew word for rule in Genesis 1.28 
is the same one that's used in Psalm 110 of the future reign of the Messiah. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying rule in the midst of your enemies. That's that same word used for Adam in Genesis 1. The word for subdue speaks of the work of a, a king. And so one scholar summarized this well, the connection between the Imago Dei, the image of God, and this dominion, this relationship between the image of God and ruling over the creation is so close that some have concluded the image of God is the function of ruling. But the function of ruling is probably a consequence of our being in the image of God. The main point is, man is God's image bearer created to rule the earth on God's behalf. So that's what we were made to do. Now you see that B there, bottom of page four, is humanity after the fall. So I just ask rhetorically to you, that's what we were made to do. How have we been doing with that? How have we been doing ruling what God gave us and gave us dominion over for his purposes? We all, we all know the answer, unfortunately, to that, and we'll see why it's a negative answer in a moment. Now, before we move on, I want to point out that the Bible then, as it moves forward, speaks of the calamity that occurred when humanity abdicated what we were made to do. And it also speaks elsewhere, beyond Genesis, of the solution to that. So if you care to jot down Psalm number 8, Psalm number 8, and Psalm number 8 talks about the glory of humanity and how God made humanity. And it, Psalm 8, is built upon this idea of the dominion mandate. That humanity was made to rule for God and you made him a little lower than the angels and you crowned him with glory and honor. This is all speaking of humanity. God did this with humanity. And that's all extolled in Psalm number 8. And it asks the question, what is man that you're mindful of him? That you gave us this exalted position. That's what Psalm 8's doing. But then it's quoted in Hebrews chapter 2. So Psalm 8, but then in your New Testament, Hebrews chapter 2, a thousand years later. And here's what it says, Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 5, 5 through 9. The writer of Hebrews says, It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there's a place where someone has testified. The there is a place where someone has testified. This would be Psalm 8. And here's what it says. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You stop there. What is man that you are mindful, son of man that you care? So Hebrew poetry, I told you before, parallelism. So you'll have a line, and then you'll have a second line that either contrasts with or further explains what that first line says. This one is explaining what the first line says. So what is man that you're mindful of him? And then the next line is the Son of Man. Man and the Son of Man, same thing. Okay? That you care for Him. You made Him. Humanity, man, Son of Man. You made Him a little lower than the angels. You crowned Him with glory and honor. And notice, you put everything under His feet. So we're, we're not making up this dominion mandate. That's what we were made to do. That was God's design for us to rule on his behalf, put everything under humanity's feet. 
in putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. So it says everything, the writer of Hebrews underscores everything. God gave everything for us to rule on his behalf. So how do we do with that? Next line. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. The writer of Hebrews understated way saying, man, did we mess that up. It's supposed to be all subject to us, and it's not, to put it mildly. But what's the answer? The next line says, verse 9, but we see Jesus. So humanity messed up. I messed up. You messed up. In Adam. We sinned. But, thanks be to God, there is Jesus, who was made fully like humanity, a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. And how is he able to do what we failed to do? Because he suffered death. How does suffering death qualify you to rule on God's behalf like Jesus is? Here's how. Because in suffering that death, it was the final, the final and consummate act of obedience on the part of Jesus when he came to earth. His whole life was one life of obedience. And it led up to the consummation in obedience on the cross. And because he was obedient fully throughout his life to the mission that he was given, unlike the first Adam, the last Adam obeyed. And because he obeyed, he is now the one that can rule on God's behalf as a human being on his earth. So if I'm going to get my ruling capacity back, if you're going to get your ruling capacity back, it's only going to be because you've attached yourself that you're related to the one who succeeded where Adam failed. And indeed, the Bible teaches that we will reign with him. But we'll reign with him because of him, not because of us. Back to page four then. Humanity before the fall was made to do that, the dominion mandate. But after the fall, Adam's authority, like all creaturely authority, is derivative and circumscribed by the God who delegated it. I, th I think that took me about 45 minutes to write that sentence. I can still remember saying, okay, exactly what, all right, there it is. But, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good with it. Like all creaturely authority, it's derived. We don't have it inherently in ourselves. It comes from the ultimate authority, God. It's derived from him. And it is defined, it's circumscribed. The parameters of it are defined by God. That's what I'm saying. We get it from God and God puts the fence around it, how far it goes. Okay. After placing Adam in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it, the Lord said, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And one has said, helpfully, people often wonder why God puts a tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden. 
The reason is it reminded Adam and Eve that their authority to rule and subdue the earth was not absolute. Reminded them that I, God, suffer for Adam. I, God, am the rule maker. I'm delegating to you the ability and the responsibility to rule on my behalf. But it's always under my ultimate authority. It's delegated to you and circumscribed by me. But our first parents, bottom of page four, deliberately chose to subvert God's rule in favor of their own, succumbing to the tempter's enticement, you will be like God. You see, what was, what was so unappealing about having that one tree that we can't get a hold of is it means, you know, it's, it's filled with kids today, sinful children today, right? They can have all kinds of stuff. You just say, stay away from that. What's the thing they want to go to? And so we, who's going to put any, who's going to put any guardrails around us? Nobody. You will be like God. And in so doing, they introduced to earth the worship disorder that had already affected heaven. You see, what's recorded in Genesis chapter 3 in the fall of humanity is the first human earthly sin. But it's not the first sin in the universe because there had been a prior sin. There had been a prior rebellion. And so one has said, I quote at the top of page 5, it has been strikingly observed that the woman in yielding to the thought virtually put the tempter in the place of God. It was God who had beneficent purposes for man. The serpent had malicious designs. The woman acts on the supposition that God's intent is unfriendly while Satan is animated with a desire to promote her well-being. And so here you've got Satan being represented by the serpent in the garden, previously rebelled against God and now is bringing humanity into that rebellion. The worship disorder Man, was manifested in the garden as it is now by an exchange of the worship of the cre creator in favor of the creature. And that's why Romans 1 says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. Notice the serpent is a created thing. But the serpent was served rather than the God who created the serpent. <laughs> the fruit is a created thing. But the fruit was more pleasing than the promises of the good God who provided it. Their own self-centered freedom was more desirable than dependence on the God who offered himself to enjoy forever. Wow, what a calamity. So that's the worship disorder. We look at the created things, including ourselves, rather than the one who created them, and we value and we prioritize them over him. It's at the heart of all sin. A worship disorder. Worshiping creation rather than the creator. So, friends... I don't know everybody here. I don't know everybody's background here. I don't know your spiritual background. I don't know whether you've had time to consider what I said last week about the necessity of God. But I can say this without knowing everyone. I can say this. 
that whether you're a religious type, whether you go to church normally or you're just here for this, this series, no matter your background, you are a worshiper. The only question is who or what you worship. Everybody worships. It's just a matter of who or what it is. And in the case of sinful humanity, we've we haven't stopped worshiping. We've just decided to worship other things other than the Creator. And the vertical worship disorder, I say on page five, has had profound horizontal effects. So the vertical, us to God, has had profound effects now on the horizontal level between humanity, other humans. Horizontal effects alienating humans from one another and from the creation itself. The horizontal relational effects were seen immediately after the first human sin as Adam blamed Eve, she blamed the serpent, and both suggested it was ultimately God's fault since it involved the woman you put here with me and the serpent God created. You guys, you guys see that what, that's what's going on there? I mean, in the case of Adam, he just said it very directly. It's the woman you put here. In the case of the serpent, it's not stated directly, but it's implied. Because all of this is your show, God. All of this is what you created. So if there are any malfunctions going on here, it's with the designer. Let's talk to the engineering department. That would be you about this. And so they blame, they blame God. There seems to be an ingrained Gnostic streak in human thinking, a streak that causes people to blame some aspect of God's handiwork for the ills and woes of the world we live in. Gnostic that sees the material, physical world as bad, as evil. And what's good is the higher, so-called higher spiritual world. That's, that's the idea there. And, the, and, and I'm saying there, I'm quoting someone else saying, that there seems to be this ingrained streak in our thinking that causes us to blame something physical in God's handiwork for the ills and woes of the world we live in. Instead of, we see it as a physical evil rather than a spiritual evil. It may involve, in fact does involve, for sure, physical effects, physical aspects, but it also has a spiritual, importantly, spiritual aspect. Last sentence in that paragraph. The created world that was given for humanity's care and enjoyment will now make work more difficult as nature groans under the curse and awaits its future restoration. So because of this, the consequences include that the physical world now uh, is cursed. And you see the effects of the physical world having convulsions in volcanoes and, and earthquakes and hurricanes and all of that. In the original design from God, you would have had none of those. But now you have all of those. And in the future kingdom, you will have none of that. But it is all a consequence of the, of the fall. So I say on page five, last full paragraph on page five, the fall resulted in both an abdication and distortion. 
God's viceroy, that is humanity, as represented in Adam, now became his enemy. As Satan was cast down, humanity was cast out, resulting in separation from God and mutual hostility. Not only has humanity's position been forfeited, so also has his nature been altered. In particular, the image of God that made humanity fit for relationship with him and able to rule on his behalf has now been distorted such that we no longer accurately represent God. Humanity's new allegiance is clearly seen as Cain attacks and murders a fellow image bearer, thereby demonstrating fealty to our newly enthroned, what the Bible calls God of this world, of whom Jesus said he was a murderer from the beginning. So there's the, in those first three chapters, and then when you get to chapter four, when Cain murders Abel, it's game on. The transformation has fully occurred. And now this is the plight of humanity from that point forward. Though, bottom of page five, the image has been effaced, it's not been entirely erased. The command for capital punishment for murder is based on the fact that in the image of God has God made mankind. That's in Genesis 9. So that's well after, long after Adam and, and Eve in the time of Noah. And God says, if someone takes the life of another image bearer of mine, even though that image is now not clear as it was originally, it's distorted, it's still there. It's effaced, it's not erased. The image still exists, though in diminished capacity centuries after the fall. But that Imago Dei in humanity has been drastically altered, and that's seen in the fact that it must now be restored. In our sin, we have fallen short of the glory of God. Paul's language here is loaded with the biblical motif of the divine image. In Scripture, image and glory are interrelated ideas. As the image of God, man was created to reflect, express, and participate in the glory of God in miniature, creaturely form. Restoration to this is effected through the Spirit's work of sanctification in which he takes those who have distorted God's image in the shame of sin and transforms them into those who bear that image in glory. This is what it means to become, as 2 Peter 1 says, partakers of the divine nature. In creation, God gave then, as I teach in our core classes, master plan, and how to get the most out of your Bible, and I say it over and over and over again, this. In creation, God gave an orientation to his highest creatures. But the fall resulted in disorientation, and that, so that now a reorientation is required. If you want, in a nutshell, the entire story of the Bible, it's those three words. Orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. And as you examine our world, you should examine our world through the lens of those epochs, those realities in human history. That we were created to be this. We were given an orientation to God's world. This is what we were made to be. But the fall, sin has disoriented and distorted that. And thankfully, God is actively at work redeeming, reorienting his world. 
So though we have failed the test of the garden probation, God is graciously moving his restoration program forward. And some of us then, if we have come to God through Jesus Christ, we have benefited then from that restoration process. He's reclaiming broken image bearers and he's remaking them. That brokenness then includes misusing the physical world that we were supposed to have dominion over and we were supposed to rule on God's behalf, misusing it in all of its aspects. So is money the root of all evil? It's the love of. So it's not the physical things. It's the heart and what it does with the things. And likewise, it is not, for our topic, sexuality. It's not the physical body. The body is not bad. Quite the contrary, God made it to be good. God made sex as a good gift for his image bearers. But the distortion means that we misuse it. We bring a spiritual problem to all of the physical things around us. And it taints and affects them. So as we go through now this series, with God as the basis, God as the source, God as the beginning, this God has given a design, what it was right to be, what it was ordered to be, what was normal. And we will see through the lenses of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation, how we can think about ourselves, how we can think about other people, how we can think about what needs to be done. All right, next week, we're going to look at sexuality on the next few pages. You should bring these pages back with you. If you don't, we will have some more for you, okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we could have this time to consider this issue of who you made us to be, what we've become, and what you're doing about it. We thank you, Lord, that you have not left us to our own devices. You could have justly done so, but you have mercifully reached down to speak to us, to give us guidance from your word, to tell us what it was supposed to be like, and how it can be restored. And so we ask you to help us then as we look at your revelation to us in Scripture and we consider what's gone wrong and we consider how it's affected each of us personally and we consider the remedies that you have given in Scripture to restore us to what we were made to be. Lord, we desire to be this side of heaven made as whole as we can None of us, because we still deal with the vestige of sin, are going to be fully restored until we have new bodies in a, in a new creation. But Lord, in the meantime, we, we seek to be restored to your likeness day by day, week by week, progressively. And so we ask you to help us, help us in this series to be able to see what's gone wrong, to see what we can do to remedy that. And as a result of that, to more clearly reflect you back to you as we were made to do. Go with us, we ask this week. Grant us safety. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.
hey, y'all, uh, any of the guys who can, if you will stick around just for maybe 10 minutes, I think, we need to get the uh, uh, chairs stacked in stacks of five. And do you need to give any instructions about that? Just leave them right where they are. So if you just put a stack of five and then leave it and put another stack of five. And so ladies, if you'll clear out and let the men do that, that would be great. Thank you. <laughs> 